I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, The Devil and Webster, the latest novel from Jean Hanf Korolitz, and then a short story collection, Swimmer Among the Stars, by Kanishk Thoreau. Jean Hanf Korolitz was born and raised in New York City and graduated from Dartmouth College and Clare College, Cambridge. She is the best-selling author of the novels A Jury of Her Peers, The Sabbath Day River, The White Rose, Admission, and most recently the New York Times bestseller You Should Have Known. A film version of Admission, starring Tina Fey, Paul Rudd and Lily Tomlin, was released in 2013. And Jean's latest book, The Devil and Webster, is what we're going to be talking about today. Jean, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So how would you describe The Devil and Webster? Oh, you know, the genre thing has been such a kind of... uh bugaboo of my whole career because I've I've ricocheted around and I wouldn't have thought that was a problem because I you know I, I enjoy reading a lot of different kinds of books I enjoy thrillers I enjoy literary fiction and I I always start with the story and I write the story that I feel you know that the book is asking to be written about and I've always done that and I've ended up with everything from literary thriller, literary fiction, suspense, mystery, which really does amuse me because I really hate mysteries and I don't read them ever and I don't care who did it and I don't ever have a detective or anything like that. So, I mean, at some point I just kind of stopped not caring what people said in terms of you know, what genre I was writing in, but sort of being almost amused by it. I think it's a lot more important to publishers than it is to readers. I think readers like a great story and they appreciate good writing and they they know that it comes in, you know, different kinds of packaging. But what is this book? (laughs) Ah, it is a plot-driven, twisty, turny, suspenseful, I hope, a novel about a woman who is coming to understand that she is no longer the person she thinks she is. Her life has changed and her kind of self-image has yet to catch up with the external circumstances of her life. And it it does catch up in this book. Okay, so we'll talk about some of the the main characters in a moment, but tell us first of all about Webster College itself. What kind of school is it? Well, it's a very um, left-leaning, progressive, liberal arts, uh, New England college. 
the year is uh, 2016, and it has a tra- after a long, long history, a 200-year-old history of being a kind of very white, very male, very conservative kind of American college, it has undergone a transformation in the 1970s and 80s and come out the other end as a really kind of icon of progressive education. So it has a life story of its own, Webster does. It has a long history, by which I mean, of course, a long American history. In the UK, it's <laughs> Webster's history would be something like uh, a Keeble College or a, a kind of red brick university version of a university. But this in America is what passes for, you know, back to the beginning of the American story. It began life as a uh, outpost to convert Native Americans in backwoods New England. And uh, at some point it accepted a financial gift that came with the string of forgetting about its Native American conversion ambitions and becoming yet another college for white male wealthy New Englanders. And I think that's particularly ironic. It's history as a a sort of forced conversion school, a school that, you know, sounds on the first hear that it's like a progressive idea, but is really a sort of civilizing idea. And that compared to what the school becomes, which is obviously a, you know, believes itself to be obviously a much more egalitarian place in the present day. Well, I've been pretty upfront about the fact that this aspect of Webster is very closely based on the history of my own alma mater, Dartmouth College, which began as uh, an Indian school to educate uh, New England Native Americans. But of course, that was a bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing because it was all about creating missionaries to go back to Native American settlements and convert more Indians. But then within one generation of its creation, and this uh, Dartmouth College began life as Moore's Indian Academy, it accepted a financial gift from the Earl of Dartmouth. And part of that Part of the acceptance of that gift involved adding the two words and others (laughs) to the charter. And within, you know, a decade of that gift and the renaming of Moore's Indian Academy to Dartmouth College, there were no more Native American students at Dartmouth. And there would not be for 200 years until uh, we got a very progressive president in the 1970s. And the first thing he did was he rededicated the school to its original purpose, And that meant going out to the reservations and going out to the schools and really recruiting bright Native American students to come to Dartmouth. So that, you know, that part of Webster is 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 pretty close to to Dartmouth College. And the current president of of Webster College, uh, the first female president, no less, Naomi Roth, is your main character in the book. This is her story. Tell us something about her. Well, Naomi has actually appeared before in in my work. She was the protagonist of my second novel, uh, The Sabbath Day River, which actually was published in the UK quite a long time ago. Not many people read The Sabbath Day River. This is not a sequel in the kind of classic sense. It doesn't matter that you don't know uh, much about where she comes from. But she has come to academia after an earlier adventure in life as uh, a VISTA volunteer. VISTA was was created in the 1960s as a sort of a domestic version of the Peace Corps. So, um, you know, idealistic young Americans who were not training to go to Africa and Asia, but were, were doing similar kinds of missions in America, went through this VISTA program. And 
Naomi ends up in northern New Hampshire in uh, a community that doesn't really want her help very much. And she stays there for a long time, too long, after the end of her marriage, after the end of her Vista work proper. And she stays uh, until a rather horrendous misadventure, you know, gets through to her that it's time to move on. And at the end of that earlier novel, The Sabbath River, she does move on. And uh, The Devil and Webster sort of picks up her story 20 years later. And in the intervening time, she's had a child. She's become an academic and she has been teaching at Webster College as a women's studies professor uh, in all that time. And then by another kind of strange sequence of events, she is thrust into the national spotlight because of a, a scandalous event at Webster, and she attracts the attention of the trustees just at the moment when they are looking for a new president, and, and that's how she becomes Webster's president. So the book really kicks off, the plot kicks off with a protest, um, yes. and Naomi's not that worried about this because the students are always protesting every year yeah. there's, there's protesting she's about something and and she respects and honors this part of the the student experience protest is you know as close to eternal as you can get in higher education she threw you know a few incendiary devices herself and uh certainly symbolically incendiary devices as a student herself you know her vista work was uh, a continuation of that activism. She thinks of herself as the kind of activist president. And she has a daughter now who is a student at Webster and who is right out there on the front lines with the student protest. So this is not a problem in itself. The problem develops when A, this protest will not go away. Uh, B, they will not communicate with her as the president of the university. And C, um, the protest begins to coalesce around a very problematic incident, and that is the denial of tenure to a very popular African-American professor. And Naomi knows, as president of the university, that the reason that this professor has been denied tenure is that he's a plagiarist. But she can't say that. Tenure is private. It's very, um, very powerfully protected by the bylaws of the, the university. And she knows that if she were to go out there and say, you know, this guy you're out here defending is a plagiarist, he opens the college up to all sorts of legal action, and she can't do it. How has protest changed from the days when Naomi was, was on the front lines throwing incendiary devices? What is a protest like now? Well, I think the biggest change, and I, I should say that I'm not a scholar of the history of protest, but my sense is that protest used to be about negotiating with the university. There was a difference of opinion about a policy or an action, and the students gathered to resist the trustees and the president of the governing bodies of the university and express their opinion that, that a wrong turn had been taken. It was about getting the president to talk to them and to change the policy. Today, they're not interested in talking to the authorities at the university. They're interested in talking to the world. And they can do that through you know, any number of social media avenues and also, of course, directly to the press. And stories do not have to sort of percolate up through newspapers and radio and television. A shot, uh, literal or figurative, can be heard around the world in a matter of seconds. 
So after months of trying to get these protesters to come in and talk to her and expressing willingness to listen to them and to consider their, you know, their thoughts and their wishes, she's incredibly frustrated because they couldn't care less about talking to her. And what about, I just wanted to talk more generally about the idea of who's able to attend a school like Webster nowadays. The admissions process becomes ever more sort of labyrinthine. And in, indeed, it's a, a preoccupation of yours. Another one of your books yes. is um, is a an admissions clerk. I'm the one that was made into a film. And students nowadays, you know, they get more and more into debt. It costs more and more as each passing year goes by to actually go to college. So yeah. really, the the students see themselves more as consumers, more as customers than they do as <laughs> scholars. And therefore, with that comes a whole different set of entitlement. That's true. And, and I, I should add also, you know, not only am I obviously obsessed with this in my work, but I am personally obsessed with it because we are just in the tail end of going through it ourselves as a family for the second and final time with our the younger of our two children. So this is this is all we have talked about around here for the last you know year or two. It is an obsession with uh, within our culture, the American culture, because it is a kind of uh, it is a place where many subterranean currents of American culture converge. Um, ideas about tradition, ideas about parenting, privilege, money, success, what success looks like. But the fact is that the most selective colleges and and Webster, fictional Webster is one of them, have over the last hundred years, and probably before that, you know, changed the goalposts, moved the goalposts and, and changed their idea of what they what they were looking for. And what you have out here in the trenches, in the parental trenches, is this sense of outrage that the rules are changing and that, you know, other, some other groups, some other sociological groups, some other economical groups, some other students from other countries, they're getting an unfair advantage. And this is true across the board, which is what makes it so fascinating that, you know, people who are who belong to that sort of traditional, successful, wealthy American group feel that they're being discriminated against, whereas other ethnic groups feel that they don't have a chance at these colleges because they're not already wealthy and successful within an American context. So, I mean, you, you basically have all these barbarians at the gate um, banging and swearing and complaining, and it's, a, it's just it's a fascinating thing. But, you know, one of the interesting things about one particular student who emerges as a main character in uh, The Devil and Webster is that he, on paper, looks like a perfect student. He is a he's a refugee, a Palestinian refugee. He's an orphan. He's the victim of a terrible, terrible childhood loss. He's a, an autodidact. He's brilliant. He's hungry for knowledge. And all he wants to do is come to a place like Webster and learn. And the admissions office just eats him up because he's just so perfect. I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. And Omar turns out the character that you're talking about, as well as Professor Gore, the, the professor who's been denied tenure, they turn out to be the antagonist, the main antagonist of Naomi in this novel. This is a novel about identity politics as well as uh, you know, as the college life, and it's this is obviously a subject that's that's quite sensitive at the moment. We all remember the uh, the trouble that Lionel Shriver got into when pontificating on this subject. 
that? Are you expecting any yeah. sort of pushback? You know, I'll tell you something truly embarrassing. I had to look up the term identity politics about three weeks ago when I first saw it in a review of my book. <laughs> this is one of the interesting things about writing a book and putting it out there. And then the world kind of gets together and tells you what you've done. You know, oh, well, you, you know, this, this book is about this or that. I know a lot of things, but I don't know everything. I had never heard the term identity politics. So um, did I set out to write a novel about something that I had never even heard of before? No, I didn't. But um, yeah, I mean, one can see the trends that are out there. I don't think it's a new thing. I mean, I think back in my own college days, we were encouraged to sort of see the world through the lens of where we thought we had come from and who we thought we were. I don't think it's, I think it's a new title for an old idea. But in the sort of final analysis, the book seems to be about the tension between, you know, the idea of a community and perhaps even a closed community like a college and the idea, the ever-burgeoning idea of, like, asserting a individual identity to people and the, and the sort of the conflicts between those two things. Yeah, I, I think that's very much a part of it. I mean, in a sense, I didn't really figure out what the book was quote-unquote about until I had the, you know, the thorny little task of writing the jacket copy, which is something that... Luckily, I used to do many years ago when I was an editorial assistant, and now for some reason they, they ask the authors to do it. And, you know, the, the challenge of, of reducing, in this case, a 300-page novel to about two paragraphs of, of description that is, you know, cogent and pithy and makes you want to read the book, uh, I was doing that, and I found myself writing the phrase, the fragility that lies behind who we think we are and what we think we believe. And... I think we all kind of walk around with this idea, not only of who we are, but what we believe and how much pressure can our beliefs really bear? I mean, if I, if I were in a, you know, between a rock and a hard place, how tightly would I cling to my ideals? I don't know. I can't answer that. And I think that's something that Naomi really has to face. And, and she comes up with an answer that is pretty shocking. I mean, she really has a, a very brutal uh, self-discovery in the course of this book, not only about her beliefs, but her sense of who she is as a parent, her sense of who her friends are, what she's done with her life, what she can reasonably expect to do with her life. I mean, it's a pr she has a pretty rough ride. So, Jean, can I get you to read us some of The Devil and Webster? Sure. I mean, I'm going to read a little... Um, a little passage about plagiarism, and I love writing about plagiarism. I think all writers do. I think we all have this very uneasy sense that we may ourselves be plagiarists, which I think is why writers do return to this topic, and I've returned to it. I'm returning to it here. I also want to point out that the story told that I'm about to read from was itself, if not plagiarized, <laughs> it wasn't plagiarized, but it was not my story. It was a story that was told to me many years ago by somebody who is no longer living. And I think he would absolutely have loved this. But here we go. This is a little um, meditation on plagiarism, which, as you remember, is the crime with which the professor who's been denied tenure has been charged. Ah, plagiarism. It was an ugly word. Ugly to anyone who'd ever attempted the delicate but gut-wrenching task of setting words onto paper or its technological equivalents. 
Words might feel universal, but they were not, because when they were put together, they made patterns, and those patterns were as personally composed as any line of music or labored over pigment on a canvas. The theft of words, however, stalked every university, no matter its prestige, and fighting it felt at times like whacking away at the angel of death from Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, thick green smoke winding its way down every hallway and into every classroom. Once, a few years earlier, Francine had told her about some website that sold academic papers and custom-made application essays, and Naomi had spent an hour examining it, clicking around with a sick fascination. There were actual testimonials on the site, praised from its satisfied customers. Plagiarism is completely off-bounds for my professor, a boy from Memphis, Tennessee, had written. So whenever I order a paper at EssayHelp.com, I always check the plagiarism secure option so I can be completely sure my essay was not copied from anywhere. Hilarious. Also appalling. Also tragic. Not to mention epically pervasive. Never had this been more clear to Naomi than in a class she once TA'd back at UMass when she was a doctoral student. The course was a big survey of 20th century political activism and social movements, and Naomi's assigned seminar group had had the usual mix of the clever and the dense. Naomi's favorite student was a young woman from Holyoke, Massachusetts, whose family had emigrated from El Salvador a few years earlier. The girl was sweet, serious, hardworking, and genuinely interested in the subject matter, everything one could desire in a student. But her relationship to the English language was not a peaceful one. And while she could communicate well enough aloud, the written assignments she turned in were usually broken and illogical. When the girl submitted her final paper, Naomi knew right away that they were both on thin ice. The paper began with her typical choppy and mangled prose, then suddenly morphed into a beautifully argued overview of patterns in American activism. On and on with nary a comma out of place for eight delightful and thought-provoking pages, only to conclude on the ninth page with another paragraph of tortured sentences signifying nothing. What to do about it? Naomi liked her student personally, thought of her as diligent and serious, and knew perfectly well that she was the first person in her newly American family to attain the heights of a college education. The dilemma kept her up for a few nights. Well, two-year-old Hannah was also keeping her up, so that wasn't much of a stretch. And then all at once, she arrived at a perfect solution. At the next class meeting, she announced that a serious matter had come up. A person in the seminar group had plagiarized his or her paper, she informed them. This person would not be named, but if he or she phoned Naomi at home that evening to discuss the matter, Naomi promised that they would not fail the course or be reported to the disciplinary committee. The student would naturally be required to submit a new paper and could expect a lower grade, but that was, of course, far preferable to failing the class and facing the serious penalties of plagiarism. That evening, as she was feeding Hannah, the calls began, and by the time she had put her daughter down for the night, fully half of the class had checked in. Every time she picked up the phone, Naomi had had to suppress her shock and pretend that the caller was the very student of whom she'd spoken. The tenth and final call was from the plagiarist the original plagiarist. Sadly true. True story. <laughs> it is. And, and, you know, whenever I read that at universities, which, I, of course, I love to do, there is this groan of recognition. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm afraid it's out there. And, uh, yeah. I've been talking to Jean Hanf Korolitz about her latest novel, The Devil and Webster, which is out now from Faber and Faber. Jean, thanks so much for talking to me about it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Kanish Tharoor is a writer and broadcaster based in New York. His short fiction has won numerous prizes and been nominated for the National Magazine Award. He was also the presenter of Museum of Lost Objects, a 10-part BBC radio series on the cultural destruction in Iraq and Syria, which appeared on BBC Radio 4 and the World Service in 2016. And now he's the author of a collection of stories, Swimmer Among the Stars, which we're going to talk about today. And he's also working on a novel. Kanish, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. How would you describe Swimmer Among the Stars? Well, it's um, it's a collection of short stories that I've been working on for quite a while. The oldest story in the collection, um, I think, was written when I was 18, and the most recent one was written when I was 31. So it's, it's come together over a period of time, and the stories often have different points of origin and different des- points of destination, but they are knit together, I think, by my interest in the way, in experiences of loss and nostalgia and um, the way people's identities change under great pressures. And I think in my interests in uh, uncanny and transcending moments of history as well. And so over that long period of time that you said they took to write, how would they come about? Well, I mean, uh, listen, with, with a book of short stories, they're so, you know, often they, they, don't, they weren't all sort of conjured in the same way. Um, some had been sort of brewing in me for quite a while. For example, there's a, a series of small vignettes called The Mirrors of Iskander, which uh, reimagines 
the, the what we know as the Alexander Romance, a whole legendary cycles of tales about Alexander the Great, which I had been thinking about for years and years until and researching and reading around until the point that I sat down and actually wrote out um, that sequence of vignettes. But there are other stories that came to me after. Um, you know, that came to me after reading something or an experience I had. Uh, there's a story in the collection called A United Nations in Space, which imagines uh, the United Nations uh, having to seek refuge in a near-Earth orbital hotel in outer space because the Earth is so ravaged by climate change that they can't administer the affairs of the planet <laughs> on the ground, so to speak. And that came to me um, when I read in the newspaper about the crisis facing the Libyan parliament because of the chaos in the country, they were forced to take refuge in a luxury Greek car ferry in the Mediterranean because it was too unsafe to administer the affairs of Libya in Libya itself. And I found something so tragic and comic in that that I wanted to take it to its logical extreme. So as, a, as you can tell, the, you know, these, these stories come from different kinds of inspiration, and but they are sort of united by my interest in engaging with a wider world and in taking readers sort of into the reaches of my imagination. And I'm going to come back to the mirrors of Ishkandar a little later on. I want to look at a, a few of the stories in closer detail. Before we do that, both of your parents are, are writers and academics, and you mentioned that you obviously one of these stories comes from when you was 18, but have you have you always been writing? What was it like growing up in a, in a household of writers? It was a great privilege, um, and I, I feel very lucky to have grown up in, you know, a sequence of cramped New York City apartments overflowing with books and overflowing with the activity of reading. Um, I remember from a young age, you know, not only were there lots of books in, the, in, in our house, there were books from all over the place. And I was exposed, I think, to a very wide range of international um, literature. So I remember from when I was small, my mother would read to me, read to my brother, me and my twin brother, who's also a writer, actually, from the Old Testament and or from the Persian Book of Kings, the Shahnameh, or from books of Russian folk tales. So we had this, like, we were very lucky to have a very eclectic, you know, world of literature available to us from the outset. And then also to see, you know, I feel lucky that I also was able to see the activity of reading and writing in a serious way from a young age. And it so that the world, I suppose the world of literature never felt too remote or opaque or unreachable. And that writing seemed like a logical thing to do. Let's look at some of the, the stories in a little more detail then. So the title story, Swimmer Among the Stars, right. deals with a, a group of academics who are interviewing the last speaker of a language. You mentioned some of the themes that are in this book, and that this one gets right in there, that sort of right. the dislocation that being the, the last speaker of a language brings, doesn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, this is an issue that um, I think all of us who uh, inhabit, who dream, who sleep, who read, who think in English should be should think about. You know, we should think about the, the way our linguistic empire rides roughshod over the earth. Um, we live in a time of unprecedented language loss, where nearly half the world's languages are at risk of disappearing. And it's worthwhile thinking what that means, you know. I, and this story came out of that interest in the question, in the issue of uh, of language extinction. And it dramatizes um, the encounter between a team of ethnographers and a woman who's thought to be the last speaker of her language in a remote mountain village. But curiously, my own interest in this issue was sparked 
not by my travels to some remote place, but actually because I found recently that New York City, where I live, is home to over 800 languages, many of which are endangered, and some of which are no longer spoken in the places they came from, whether it's the hill tracks of Bangladesh or Indonesia or Kenya or so forth, but remain alive tenuously in diaspora in uh, in New York City. So, and I have a friend who's involved in, in the work of, of cataloging and um, recording what remains of these languages. And so I was very, I, I, that, that, that sparked my interest in this wider issue. And now what I do with, I mean, I don't, I, at the same time, you know, I'm a bit ambivalent about this question. Um, I, I, while I think the work that these, uh, these anthropologists and ethnographers do is extremely worthwhile and important, I also, you know, I worry about whether we do some kind of injustice to what a culture is if we think that a language is equivalent to a species. So that if you lose a language, you somehow lose a unique way of seeing the world, a unique cultural attitude. Because I think that that there's a danger of fixing culture, of, of making it too rigid uh, a construct, so to speak. And uh, so as you, in my story, the last speaker, you know, wrestles with that and I think resists the ethnographers a bit when she tries to invent in her own language to to break the mold you know of the kinds of folk tales they want her to tell them and to revivify her sense of herself by playing with what she, what she has left of her own language and I, I really loved in the story how you describe her using the language almost as if she's using a kettle or a bag or something. It's very much a an object to her. It's something that's of use. And obviously, a dead language that's just catalogued in a university library somewhere is really of no use to anybody. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't. I'm not sure if I'd go that far. I think you know. I think that. <laughs> these things are it's good to have some some catalog of these things i mean otherwise you know languages like manx or uh, even uh, couldn't be revived if we hadn't done the sort of basic ethnographic field work that has allowed their revival in the 21st century so so i wouldn't say it, it's of no use to anybody but i do think that i do think that there isn't an easy connection between a language and our sense of what a culture is. So that I don't think you can know a people or know uh, a culture by simply knowing their language. Carrying on talking about, you know, methods of communication, the story Portrait with Coal Fire, which tells the story of a, a conversation like we're having now, a sort of Skype conversation about a magazine photo essay with one of its subjects. I'm reminded of that incredibly famous, I can't remember if it was the National Geographic or Time cover of the Afghan girl with the very vivid blue eyes. Right. Tell us something about this story. Well, this was provoked by, um, by a photograph I did see in a, in, a ma in a glossy magazine, I won't say the name. That troubled me, you know, it, it, uh, because it made me, it was a picture of, it was indeed, as I describe in the story, of a, of a coal miner in India. And, um, you know, I was, I was curious if I could, I was, I was trying to imagine what he would think if he saw this picture of himself in this magazine published far away for an audience that, you know, is remote to him as well. And it comes, I suppose, out of my larger concern about representation, about the way the way we depict certain pe people. And this doesn't—it's not just about, say, a Western photographer in India. It could be—it really could be by any kind of relationship where there's somewhat there's a sort of an imbalance of power. And it's my concern of what it means to to speak on behalf of others, if it's possible to speak on behalf of others, what it's like to to see your life represented by others. 
Um, which I think, you know, in the world we're living in, which is increasingly connected, where these issues of identity and representation are very are increasingly powerful and contested, I thought it was worthwhile exploring, <laughs> dramatizing the kind of response of that subject, or rather of, yeah, of, of the object of that gaze, of the photographer's gaze, to the photographer himself. So that was, the, the story was, I think, exploring that inescapable tension that comes with this kind of photography, much of which I really admire and I think is amazing work. And I don't want to impugn the, the photographer himself, who probably has the best of intentions. But I want to, I was just curious to explore the implications and to, to wrestle with what it means to be represented this way. So the mirrors of Iskandar, which is a story you've already mentioned. Mm -hmm. So this is based on what was once a, a popular form, stories out of the life of Alexander the Great. So what were these? So this was um, this began in around the fourth century AD, so many hundred years after uh, Alexander passed away, and it spread from what is now sort of the area around what we what we consider the Levant, from languages like Greek and Syriac into all sorts of other traditions, from Armenian to various Turkic languages, further west to into Europe. Um, such that it, you know, it reached at the time that it reached as far as Scotland, it was also wending its way towards Malacca's, and these were, or to what is now Malaysia, I should say, um, and these were a series of uh, legendary tales about that sort of dramatized and adorned what we consider the historical record of the life of Alexander the Great, and they're really marvelous, marvelous stories. Often they feature figures like Plato and Aristotle as his guides. Um, as his spiritual advisors, as his translators, um, and they feature mechanical, magical, me mechanical objects, uh, battles with giants, contests uh, between teams of artists in the court of China, um, journeys to the bottom of the sea. So this was, um, it was, what, what I've always found very moving about these tales is that their attitude to this figure of power Alexander, this supposed hero, was not simply, you know, a kind of eulogizing panegyric. It was actually, when you read into it, he's treated with a lot of humor at times in some of these ancient tales, and critique. The aspiration of power, the aspiration to rule, is constantly, often in religious terms, checked in these stories. And, you know, Alexander's aspirations for omnipotence uh, and everlasting life are rebuked. So I found that kind of implicit critique really interesting that, they, that existed in these ancient texts, and I wanted to sort of reinvent them for the modern age. Now, the, the, the versions of these that really stuck with me when I was young, when I first saw them, came from certain Muslim traditions, from the Arabic and Persian traditions that flourished in India as well. I'm Indian, uh, and so this feels somewhat, more clo somewhat closer to home. And I first uh, was turned on to this when I saw an illuminated page of an illuminated manuscript from uh, a 16th century version of the tale. And it, it depicted this amazing moment where Alexander is dropped, it, who in the Persian text is often referred to as Iskandar, um, when Alexander is dropped beneath the surface of the sea. And, um, you know, on the one hand, it seemed to, you know, it, it's, it's a beautiful image, first of all, the way it's composed. And it seemed to capture not only this sort of desire to explore but I think when you look at his face and the way he's looking at the sort of unrushing water, the sort of sense of, I think, a kind of self-abnegation, a fear, um, a desire to be lost, that I think is implicit in a lot of these, uh, a lot of these tales about this supposedly heroic king. 
and this is a a story within a section of stories within a story. Right. So in in, um, in the cycle, I um, in the piece I have in my collection, I take actual episodes from the Alexander romance that come from different traditions, from the Armenian tradition, from the Oghuz Turkic tradition, from the Persian tradition, from other versions of the of the Alexander romance, and um, I rewrite them for our modern age, so to speak. And would it be fair to say that those themes that are in this in this short section are then replicated throughout this book of short stories? I said, potentially. I mean, it's it's not necessarily an intention of mine to have that kind of mirroring effect, but I, inevitably, you know, my my wider interests are reflected in my particular interests, and um, if those themes bleed into the rest of the stories, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I'm David Stubbs. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to talk about Elephant at Sea, which is a a story that also has its roots in a real event. What happened? Yeah, so this is a story that was initially told to to my twin brother and me when we were small by a family friend. And it was we were were told about how in the 1950s, actually, uh, the princess of Morocco asked the then Indian ambassador for an elephant. And he, not wishing to disappoint her, obliged. But given the pace of Indian bureaucracy, by the time he put in the request and by the time the request was processed and by the time the elephant was dispatched and it arrived in Morocco, it was about seven years later, by which point the princess had grown up and um, lost interest in this elephant and was about to go study sociology in Paris, I believe. And so the Moroccans, uh, they were left with this elephant that arrived in Casablanca that had to be transported to Rabat, and uh, it had to be literally walked in this slightly ludicrous convoy. And so this story stuck with me, and I visited um, Morocco about 10 years ago, and it came back to me then, and uh, I wrote this story that was not, you know, it wasn't just about this elephant, it's about sort of larger themes of displacement and and migration and so forth. But uh, what was amazing was when I launched this book in India, uh, at my book launch about a year ago in in Delhi, a woman was in the audience who actually was the daughter of the ambassador of India, the Indian ambassador at the time. And um, she came and with a photograph of herself and the same Moroccan princess who asked for the elephant. And she told me that I had really the story had really moved her, that I described a world she knew, that my descriptions of her father, which I had completely invented, um, were very much like him. So it was very strange um, and, and quite remarkable, I felt, to produce something completely out of my imagination, or almost completely out of my imagination, and for it to come back to me in real life. Sort of one of these miraculous things, I suppose, that can happen to a fiction writer. That's amazing. Just one more story, then, I wanted to talk about, which is um, Tale of the Tea House, Uh um, which is basically a a sort of countdown of impending doom, the story of the last few days of a town awaiting a great Khan to come and presumably decimate the town and murder everybody. Tell us something of this story. So this was... um... I wrote this, I was inspired to write this story, actually. Again, you asked at the beginning about where these stories all come from, and they come from often different points of, insp- of different kinds of inspiration. This was inspired, actually, when I saw, quite a few years ago, a Soviet-era film called The Fall of Otrar, which is about a Central Asian city falling to the forces of Genghis Khan. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's one of these old Soviet-style, black-and-white, social-realist kind of historical films. Um, but it moved me at the time, and I I think also influenced by my love for writers like Italo Calvino, I set about returning to this apocryphal Central Asian city and, and dramatizing conversations that take place in a tea house a week up to its destruction. 
but what was amazing was when and the, the, the story was um, well received here in the United States and it won a few awards and was nominated for the National Magazine Award and what was curious was that it was um, one of the reasons it was it was I think received well is that a lot of readers and editors who published it interpreted the story as as to be about um, Baghdad and this was a few years after the the American invasion um, and they interpreted the story as a story about the destruction of Baghdad which was not at all my intention but it's a case where you know as as a writer I my intention only matters so much um, and I'm perfectly happy with the way with you know whether if when certain interpretations trump my intentions and people find kinds of resonance in my story that I hadn't imagined them being in the first place. We're nearly out of time, and I'm going to ask you to finish by reading something from Swim Around One of the Stars. But before we do, can you just say something about your impending novel? Are you able to? I'm, I don't mean to be precious, but it's something that until I, I finish it and feel like it's, on, it's really on its way out into the world, I'm not hugely keen to talk about. It, I will just say that, like much of my other work, it is historically minded... I don't want to call it historical fiction. It is set well into the past on either side of the Mediterranean. But hopefully one day your your listeners will have a chance to to read it when it's out. And hopefully we can talk about it again happily. when it's yes, out. Happily. Okay, if you would um if you would read us something. Sure. Okay, so this is from the Leeds the title story, Swimmer Among the Stars. And it is um as I said, it's the story dramatizes the encounter between the last speaker of a language and a team of ethnographers interested in recording the language and its fragments. So I'm gonna read a small section from the middle of this story. I'm much obliged to you, she says. I'm very grateful that you have come here to see me and let me feel old in my language. She means it too. To whom else can she pass this inheritance? Her children may have known a handful of words when they were young, but their mother's tongue was always too much of a responsibility. They would come home from the fields or the houses of their friends or from school and look at their mother with a kind of fatigue, as if her language was only another chore, as tedious as dishes. She thought about making a more concerted effort to teach them, but where could she begin? As far as she knew, her language was not something that was ever taught. How could she explain its quixotic use of tenses, its habit of piling on suffixes to verbs, its wealth of nouns, when she had no knowledge of that herself? Her ability was only intuitive, the work of habit, not understanding. In their classrooms, her children would go to the blackboard and write out conjugations in the common language. They memorized ditties that helped explain the subjunctive and mnemonics that guided correct spelling. Against this ordered system of rules, her own language seemed amorphous, entirely shapeless. What was allowed and what wasn't, she wondered. When her father sang his songs, or when her sisters gossiped about the grocer in front of him, could it be that in speaking they had often misspoken? She didn't begrudge the fact that her children eventually shed what language she had given them. How could they know that the babble of their mother was a language at all? Her son now farms in his wife's town on the other side of the valley, not far, but far away enough that he does not see his mother often. Her daughter was always the cleverer of the two, destined for the city and its indispensable comforts. Air conditioning, coffee, the admiring glances of strangers. Every month, her daughter sends her some money. They speak often on the phone, and their conversations are loving and repetitive, as all loving conversations should be. She is proud that neither of her children is vulnerable to false nostalgia, that they find full satisfaction in the present of their lives. In my language, she tells the ethnographers, words for gratitude are much different than in the common speech. We have many kinds. This, for instance, is used to express a very dark kind of gratitude, to be thankful for the loss of something. This means to be grateful despite yourself, with a hint of bitterness. This is used to describe a sudden, overwhelming feeling of gratitude. 
This is the feeling children have when they receive small treats like sweets or when they are lifted by an adult and spun and spun. The ethnographers take notes. Nobody ever compiled a complete grammar or lexicon of the language, so part of their mission is to attempt to reconstruct the language in its fullness. They will never know that in her language there were more than a dozen ways of indicating and describing gratitude. Here are a few more. The gratitude of natural things for one another, like the hive for the branch, the tree for the bees, the cloud for the sun. Collective gratitude, the thanks of a family or a town or a people. Gratitude directed to the cosmos for superiority, for knowing that one is better than everyone else. The gratitude of one saved from death by starvation. Her language boasted many verbs for which no simple equivalent exists in the common language. For example, this means to be afraid of seeing time pass. This means to tell stories in the depths of winter. This is the action of stirring a kind of gravy in a pot. This also denotes the motion of a pig rooting around in the mud. This refers to the way light splinters against a range of mountains at dusk. This describes, in one word, how mountains gain mass and shape at dawn. This means to feel strange in an unfamiliar place. This means to be patient for spring, as does this and this. If she remembered all or some of these words, the last speaker's testimony would be a little more refined. Unfortunately, she doesn't remember them. Some she never knew in the first place. It's not her fault, no measure of her intelligence or sophistication. When the number of speakers of a language shrinks, so does the language itself. She grew up with an impoverished vocabulary, a skulking tongue, never with the means to recover those lost words. The ethnographers, despite their best efforts, won't be able to restore her language. How can anybody learn that which has never been written down, that which nobody knows any longer? It is sad, but sad in an unremarkable way. Humans always lose more history than they ever possess. I've been talking to Kanish Tharoor, who've been talking about Swimmer Among the Stars, his debut collection of short stories, which is out now from Picador. Kanish, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much for this conversation. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.